Well, welcome to episode 11 of Oklahoma Appeals, the podcast. I'm Gabe Bass, and I'm here with my co-host, former staff attorney at the Oklahoma Supreme Court and current appellate advocate, Jana Knott. Hey, Jana. Hey, Gabe. So we are still in our first series on the podcast called Practicing in the District Courts Across the State. And today we are excited to welcome our guest, the Honorable Michael Tupper, District Judge in Cleveland County. So welcome, Judge Tupper, and thank you so much for being with us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Judge Tupper, could you start by telling our listeners a little bit about your background? Yeah, so the, the Tuppers, uh, we, I like to claim that we, we hail from New England. Um, <laughs> and while I grew up mostly in Oklahoma, um, uh, my, my family is originally from the New England uh, states, um, Maine, uh, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, um, and I was uh, born in Indiana. Uh, shortly thereafter, we moved to, to Illinois, and uh, we lived in uh, the suburbs of Chicago um, until uh, I was in fourth grade, and I'm the youngest of four, and so we moved out here to Oklahoma, Mustang, Oklahoma, uh, where I uh, grew up, went through school, in the Mustang school system, graduated from Mustang High, and uh, then shortly thereafter went to uh, Oklahoma State University for undergrad and uh, finished at OSU and came down to Norman for uh, OU Law School and have been here ever since. All right, great. Well, hey, good to know we have another uh, Canadian County uh, product on the podcast That's right. today. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if you don't know, we are, our firm um, originates in Canadian County. We've been in El Reno since 1934. Um, and so you can, you can see us today on the screen. Gabe's in Oklahoma City in our office, but my office and our main office is in El Reno. So that's where I'm at. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Very familiar with Canadian County. Right. Uh, Jana, didn't, you didn't mention that uh, you actually grew up in Minko. Yeah, I did. I'm a Minko girl, so I know where I know where Mustang's at. <laughs> we were going to the big city when we were going to Mustang. So. That's right. Just just down 152. That's right. right. Yep. <laughs> the Mustang has changed quite a bit over the years. That's for sure. It's uh, barely recognizable from when I was there, but I bet. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, my father still lives out there, and so I get okay. to visit uh, Mustang every once in a while. Good. All right. Well, how about your legal career, Honor? Can you tell us um, a little bit how you got your start in the practice of law? Yeah, sure. So, um, as I said, I, I came down to Norman for law school in, in 1999 and um, started going through my, my uh, law school experience. And uh, when I got to my third year of law school, it was really time for me to uh, start looking at some internships and uh, trying to get my foot in the door um, to, to start whatever legal career, career I was going to um, do. And so uh, there was uh, an opening for an intern at the Cleveland County District Attorney's Office, and um, I applied for that and uh, was able to gain an internship at the Cleveland County DA's Office my third year of law school and um, didn't know a thing about um, 
the DA's office. I went took some criminal law classes, but um, didn't know much. Um, and I, I'll never forget the first day I got to the DA's office. I was uh, handed a stack of files and I was told <laughs> to go to a courtroom and be ready to try these cases if necessary. <laughs> <Wow>. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of on the job training. It was uh, training by, by doing. And um, so it was great. Um, I was terrified of the courtroom um, early on. And uh, the more I got exposed to it, the different judges and courtrooms and, and cases, uh, I started gaining some comfort with it. And the cases were just fascinating, um, uh, dealing with the, the various criminal cases. And so I uh, went through that internship uh, my third year. And then when I graduated in 2002, um, I was able to secure a assistant district attorney position at the DA's office. And so I worked in the DA's office for a little over eight years. And I started in a general felony assignment and uh, then moved on to um, uh, prosecuting drug cases specifically and did that for a few years and then worked into uh, the major crimes unit, which was the homicides and um, sex crimes and some of the more serious uh, violent offenses. And so that was kind of my experience in the DA's office, got to try a lot of cases, appear before uh, a lot of great judges. And um, that was how I uh, um, gained a lot of the courtroom experience. All right, and then at some point you had the opportunity to go on the bench as a special judge in Cleveland County. So how was the transition from uh, one side of the courtroom to the other? Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting. It was <laughs> entirely unexpected, I'll tell you that. There were parts of it were, uh, were seamless, uh, and, there, and then there were other parts that were not so much. So, um, you know, I was plugging away at the DA's office, and I was 31 years old, and uh, wasn't even thinking about a, a judicial career. Um, I had reached the point where uh, I uh, wanted, I had to decide, am I going to uh, become a career prosecutor? Am I going to um, venture out and, and see what else is out there. And so I made the decision at that time to, to leave the DA's office and I went to a civil firm in Oklahoma City because I wanted to get um, some civil experience. And, and so I did that. And within six months of me leaving the DA's office, um, a vacancy opened here in Cleveland County for a special judge uh, position. And I was aware of it, but I wasn't really thinking about it. And um, I, I found out that there was an interest in me coming back to, to fill that vacancy. And so when I, I realized that, then I started thinking more about it and um, the interest started growing. And, and you know, it just um, it happened to be that I got appointed to fill the vacancy. And so when I, when I did that, it was a great honor for me. And um, my case assignments were um, predominantly criminal, which I was very comfortable with doing a lot of the, the magistrate duties um, of a special judge, uh, the misdemeanor cases, the felony preliminary hearings, arraignments. Um, I did get 
uh, more involved with the treatment courts uh, of Cleveland County, the drug court um, specifically. Um, but what wasn't so seamless was the other types of cases that I was now uh, presiding over, like the small claims cases, the the some of the family law cases, the guardianships, and all of the these other types of cases that I didn't frankly, even though we're being heard in the courthouse uh, before <laughs> I took the bench. And, uh, but here I was uh, presiding over these cases. So I just, uh, I really tried to learn them and, and understand them. And uh, again, you, you learn them a lot as you, as you go through them. And so that took some, some time. Um, but in eight plus years of uh, being a special judge, I got more comfortable with it, and and it was a great experience um, getting to do the those variety of cases and learning how to manage uh, a high volume docket um, and just how important it is to to keep those cases moving. That's interesting, and and also a good reminder to practitioners that especially if you're before a judge that's new to the bench or new to that docket to, if you can learn a little bit about the judge's background, because they may not have a lot of experience in the matter that that's before them that you're handling and you can help them out uh, in those type of cases by maybe providing a little more briefing or a little more information than, than you may not otherwise, if it's someone who has handled that docket for a long time and, and doesn't need that, type of information to resolve the issues. Yeah, that's without question the case. And boy, do I rely upon uh, lawyers to assist me in making these decisions, um, even more so on the, the district court level. Um, and it, it's just so fundamental. Attorneys should never assume that the judge they're appearing before ha has years and years of experience and knowledge uh, handling this type of case that's before them. Um, so I think it's incumbent upon these attorneys to really educate the judges, show them where they need to go in these cases and, and provide the judges with, with that roadmap. And um, it, it's, it's very, very beneficial to the court. It's necessary for the courts. There's just too much law out there uh, for one judge to be um, all knowing in all aspects of the law. It's just, it's way too broad. So we really rely upon and need that assistance from the advocates to, to show us um, the proper course and, and advocate for it. And as practitioners, we should always keep in mind too that you know, our state court judges in Oklahoma don't don't have law clerks or staff attorneys to assist <laughs> with research and, and order writing. So, um, and they don't have the time to do most cases their own research because they have a full docket. So the lawyers really do need to do a good job of making the, the court aware of the law and, um, and, and helping the court to the right decisions. Yeah, without question. I've got a great secretary bailiff, but she is uh, not a lawyer and I don't uh, ask her to uh, behave as a lawyer. So yeah, um, we are, we're, we're a one man show and we do the best we can staying up to 
uh, speed on the current state of the law, reading opinions and and uh, researching the law. But like you say, there's only so much time when you've got this high volume of cases. It's it's really incumbent upon the uh, attorneys to to guide the judges and show them. Uh, the applicable law and why their positions are supported by the applicable law. And, and also probably important for lawyers to uh, keep in mind that um, if they, if they, while, while we're all charged with being zealous advocates, uh, we should never, um, we should never mislead the court about what the law is because uh, you probably will only get away with that once <laughs> when you're back in front of that judge. <laughs> yeah, you bet. It only takes that one time, too. And, and judges do have uh, long memories, especially on things like that. Our radars mm -hmm. are up on on those because we have to rely so much on the attorneys. If you get sideways with a judge on a point of law or um, you give the judge the impression that um, your advocacy is not sound advocacy. Boy, does that uh, put you down several notches um, with credibility with the court. And um, that really matters. And the judges really remember it. Well, one of the, one of the things we talked about whenever we were um, discussing this podcast and whether to, you know, whether there would be an audience for it um, was trial judges in our state who don't have time to, to look at OSCN every day and see what new opinions are, are coming out. And so, um, you know, one of the things that we've been doing is um, episodes that include updates of the case law that come out because it's, you know, something you can listen to in your car or when you're traveling or something like that to be able to um, you know, stay apprised of, of what's coming down from the appellate court. So I hope that that's helpful. And um, for our trial judges out there who don't have law clerks to say, yeah, here's what the, here's what the law is and here's what you should do or shouldn't do. So um, I'd like to talk a little bit more um, about your docket now as a district judge. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but in, in 2017 is when you were appointed by Governor Fallon to take the district court bench. So um, just tell us a little bit more about what dockets you have now and, and kind of what you're doing. Yeah, sure. Uh, so in 2017, uh, I was appointed um, to a district court uh position uh, from my position as special judge. And so that changed all my dockets again, uh, once again. And uh, so since 2017, uh, I've maintained a, a fairly diverse docket and, and I've been intentional in trying to keep my dockets diverse. I think that's good. Uh, it's definitely good for me um, to, to keep uh, as, as broad of a case assignment as I can. I think it's real easy to get um, worn down, so to speak, in hearing the same type of case and only that type of case over and over. So um, I have been intentional to try and keep uh, my dockets uh, somewhat diverse. And so I carry 25% of the uh, civil docket here in Cleveland County, and that's the that's the CJ cases and the CV cases. So a good part of my case responsibility is the civil cases. Uh, I also carry a family law docket, and that's the, the paternity cases, the divorce cases, 
I carried 25% of those uh, cases here in Cleveland County. And that keeps me very busy as well. Um, and my criminal dockets, I still carry a, a criminal assignment, um, not, a, not the day-to-day -day criminal case filings. Uh, my criminal uh, docket responsibility is focused on the treatment courts. And uh, those are uh, courts that uh, I, I'm very much involved, with, uh, involved in. Um, and so those treatment courts are the drug court, the adult drug court, and the adult mental health court. Um, a couple years ago, we implemented a misdemeanor recovery court that I uh, kind of put together and, and that is off and running now. It's, it's a drug court program for misdemeanor offenses as opposed to the felony offenses. So uh, that takes up a good part of my time uh, in the criminal arena. So uh, with all that together, yeah, that's a pretty, pretty robust uh, case assignment keeps me very busy. I also handle homicide cases on a rotating basis with the uh, other district judges. So thankfully, we don't have a lot of homicides. Um, uh, but that's, uh, in essence, the, the type of cases that uh, I preside over currently. And just uh, wondering if you could tell us a little bit about, uh, on the administrative side, you know, you mentioned that you have different dockets and and uh, you've divided those up amongst yourselves, I assume, as district judges. So is that just something that the district judges get together and, and kind of come to an agreement on how the dockets are going to be handled? Yes, exactly. So we are very fortunate in Cleveland County. I work with uh, some great colleagues on the bench. Uh, there's uh, four uh, elected district judges in Cleveland County, and there's nine judges total with our specials and our associate uh, district judge. And so we uh, are very good uh, at getting together and convening, and um, we, we are constantly evaluating our case assignments, and uh, the district judges specifically get together uh, and we talk about the case assignments, who's hearing what types of case, the volume and, and the time constraints. And so we, uh, we work very well. We compromise. We, um, uh, we listen to one another and we work it out amongst the bench. And uh, we, we, uh, we all work very well in that sense, um, dividing up the, the cases. And I, I assume when there's a a decision is made about that, and um, I, I know I'm kind of getting into the weeds here, but I just think it's interesting. Mm -hmm. uh, in order to make sure that that's effectuated, I assume there has to be some type of communication with the court clerk's office and something done in the computer system so that the cases are assigned as they're filed in conformity with what the judges have agreed upon. Yeah, you bet. So whenever we uh, make a tweak to the case assignments, um, or we fill a vacancy. Uh, we've had to fill several vacancies over the last few years. Um, we will issue a new general order or administrative order, um, which sets forth in detail um, under each judge what, not just what type of cases that judge is going to be hearing, but what percentage of those cases a given judge will be hearing and that order is um, 
sent down to our court clerk's office and we've got a great court clerk, Marilyn Williams, who takes that order and she does her magic with OSCN and uh, plugs all that uh, data in and it, her system works to where new case filings as they're filed, uh, they get assigned the appropriate judge and the appropriate number of times. And so how she does it, I don't know. Um, I know she does it. And uh, I've asked her if what we're doing as far as providing her with those administrative orders, if there's anything in addition she needs and um, she, she gets it done. All right. Well, that's very interesting behind the scenes. Look at how that all, all works. And it gives me an idea, Jana, that we, maybe sometime have a series on uh, the court information system and, and get someone from OSCN to talk about how all that works and some of our court clerks uh, to explain um, to our listeners how the OSCN process works and, and the filing system and the future of uh, the court information network. Yeah, first, I think that's great. Their codes that they have, our court clerks constantly telling me about the different coding that they have uh, depending upon a certain case. And um, I try to keep up with it, but they, as court clerks, they know that system and the, the OSIS system. Uh, that would be a, that would be a very informative podcast. Okay. Well, I'll now uh, okay. stop trying to go. hijack the podcast to make, make it a, about one. technology <laughs> and, and turn it back over to Jenna. <laughs> I'll help you get it set up. <laughs> okay. Fantastic. <laughs> Uh, um, well, I think I, I really am interested in um, your treatment court docket. Um, I know several counties, you know, have their their felony drug court dockets, but I, I wasn't aware that there were any mental health courts or any misdemeanor recovery courts, and probably just because that's not my practice area, but if you... Um, if you don't mind, will you just tell our listeners a little bit about how the process works in those treatment courts and if you have success rates or any other statistics that, that you could provide? Um, I think that's, that's really an interesting area of the law. Yeah, sure. So, so how much time do we have? Right. Uh, <laughs> now, this is, you know, there's a lot of types of cases that, that you know, most people don't want to talk about and judges don't have a whole lot of interest in talking about. And um, treatment courts um, are different. I very much enjoy talking about these programs and sharing about them because they're, they're so important. Uh, they work. So I think it's important to, when you talk about treatment courts to understand some of the, the language of what you're actually talking about, because different counties refer to them as different um, programs. So you'll hear the term treatment court in some counties or diversionary courts or alternative courts or drug courts. Um, it's all the same model when you're talking about any of those programs. And I think the most apt term is treatment courts because that's what's going on in these programs. Um, they are deviating people who are find themselves in the criminal justice system charged with either a felony or misdemeanor offense. And through a, a process of screening, um, an investigation, they, these cases and these people get identified as 
persons who are suffering from either addiction or mental illness or a combination of both, and they get identified as being good candidates for one of our treatment courts, a mental health court or a drug court. Uh, and so through that process, uh, and everybody's a stakeholder in it, the district attorney's office, the, the court, the defense attorney, the treatment providers, law enforcement, all those different stakeholders make up part of the team of what these uh, programs have. And so the, and it's voluntary on the uh, offenders part too. We don't force anyone into these programs. It has to be a voluntary decision and it's, it's contractual in nature. So essentially um, through the, the plea in process, the uh, offender would enter a plea of guilty or no contest to their underlying charges and sentencing would be put on hold while they enter either the drug court or mental health court. And that program uh, is quite extensive. Uh, drug courts typically anywhere from 14 months to 18 months in duration. Mental health court is typically a little bit longer, sometimes up to two years for mental health court. And it's, uh, it's a phased approach. So people enter the program in phase one and they have certain criteria or benchmarks that they need to meet in that phase and then they progress to phase two three and so on and um, our drug court program has five phases so upon completion of phase five uh, they are eligible to graduate and when graduation occurs uh, their felony case that they pled into drug court gets dismissed and they exit the criminal justice system without a felony conviction and without a term of incarceration. And so that's the, that's the preferred outcome. And so what we're doing with these people while they're in these programs, these treatment courts, is we're connecting them. We are connecting them to what they need, uh, whether it is through addiction-centered services or um, more mental health uh, related services. Uh, we're providing them with a connection to community-based treatment providers, um, access to medication uh, that helps uh, manage their mental illnesses. We're providing them with group uh, counseling, individual therapy, uh, case management. Uh, these um, persons appear before me on a weekly basis, so I get to lay eyes on it, each one of them on a weekly basis, and we have an exchange uh, every week where I'm asking about how their week was, what was good about it, what was bad about it. Um, we push them towards um, job training, um, uh, employment, and we work with them on whatever their needs are, uh, housing needs, employment. Uh, sometimes it's uh, working with trying to reunify them with their children. Um, and we, we take a holistic approach in these programs. We really roll up our sleeves and try to get to the root of what is driving the, the criminal behavior. And uh, we've got a lot of data now to show just how successful these programs are. Um, 
And so it's very rewarding. You get to literally see people's lives transform before you. Uh, it takes time uh, mm -hmm. without question. And you, you get a lot of obstacles that um, you've got to work through, but uh, it's so rewarding. And um, we, we have a lot of good outcomes with, with these programs and, um, and they work. You, you can tell Judge Tepper that you're passionate about passionate it. Passionate about and, it. That's exactly and, what yeah. I was going to say. And I, so. I didn't, I didn't uh, provide uh, any of the data. You asked for that. So, yeah, as far as um, uh, data to show just how they work, uh, it's without question. We've got 20-plus years of data now in Oklahoma to sh show just how effective these treatment courts are. So statewide, um, we, we hover around 75% um, uh, or 75% graduation rate. So hmm. we in Cleveland County are graduating um, three out of every four uh, participants that come into our programs. And that's pretty good with criminal that is, justice. That's really good. Mm -hmm. um, graduate three out of four. And um, our recidivism rates are, are much better than standard incarceration or standard probation. You know, recidivism is a primary objective of criminal justice. You want to um, eliminate the future criminal conduct. So sending someone to, to prison, um, there's, there's statistics to show that within three years of that person's release, they've got a 54% chance mm -hmm. of reoffending uh, within three years of their release. So stated differently, more than 50% uh, of every person released from prison is, is going to reoffend within three years. That's not real good. Uh, versus sending that same person to a treatment court, um, number one, they stay in the community. And number two, upon graduation, of uh, the recidivism rate hovers around 20% for um, graduates of treatment courts. So that's about eight out of every 10 persons that you put in the program are going to remain lawful in their conduct three years thereafter. And so look at what we're doing here, mm -hmm. what works better. And, and the cost savings isn't even close. It costs a lot of money to incarcerate people um, um, approximately $19,000 a year uh, taxpayer expense to lock someone up for a year versus approximately $5,000 uh, to treat that person in a treatment court. So it's, it's not even close, really. You're getting better outcomes uh, and you're being much more um, intelligent with uh, where the money's going. Yeah, and that's not even to to you mentioned that they stay in the community and there are so many um, costs of sending one someone to uh, a prison that are not measurable oh, yeah. necessarily but you're taking them out of the workforce you're taking them away from you know children and and families who they're maybe the the, the main provider for so there's a lot of negative externality to uh, sending someone to prison so, yeah without question the collateral uh, effects of uh, of that are far-reaching. And is there a statewide um, agency or 
oversight or some type of statewide organization that kind of uh, has some um, overview of all the drug drug courts or treatment courts? Is I I just learned that term from you today, <laughs> treatment courts, but I, I like it. I think it's a, a much better thing, uh, a much yeah. better term to use. But sure, absolutely. So um, our uh, in Oklahoma, the state's uh, drug court programs, they're, they're run on a county level. So um, if, you, if a county has a drug court program, it's, it's run at that level. Uh, but they are all receive funding through the Oklahoma Department of Mental Health and Substance mm -hmm. Abuse Services. And so each county drug court contracts with the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services and, and receives state funding through, through that agency, also receives federal funding through, through that agency. And um, so uh, the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services uh, provides us with um, the best practices and the kind of the overview, the manuals and, and the trainings. Do you have any idea, Judge Tepper, on how many of the 77 counties have a treatment court? Yeah, it's it's been fluid over the years. Uh, last I checked, there were uh, 70 drug courts servicing 73 counties. Mm -hmm. So Oklahoma is, is, and Oklahoma has always been on the forefront of treatment courts. Um, we... Uh, the Oklahoma Drug Court Act came into effect in 1996, I believe. And since that time, um, Oklahoma has been really at the forefront and doing, doing good work with these programs. That's great. Well, that's a story that doesn't get told enough, but we're happy to do our little part here. <laughs> <laughs> we try, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, um, we recently uh, talked on one of our episodes about how the Oklahoma Supreme Court had entered a, a Supreme Court administrative order that essentially delegated to each of the district courts across the state on a courthouse by courthouse basis the power to handle uh, the COVID-19 pandemic impacts. So what, if anything, is going on currently in Cleveland County regarding um, judicial business in light of the the ongoing pandemic. Yeah, so it has been um, an ever-evolving situation for sure. Uh, we have simply never been through anything like this, and hopefully won't have to go any go through anything like this in the future. So, um, like every uh, courthouse, um, we have. Um, worked through a continuity of operations plans. And so we have modified ours here in Cleveland County uh, on a number of occasions since March of 2020. And uh, our current operations plan uh, has been in effect since December 14th of 2020. That's the one we're currently operating under. And it, it restricts uh, access uh, in-person access to the courts without question. Number one, our courthouse is open and our courthouse um, uh, has remained open and we have uh, been adamant about that, uh, keeping our courthouse open and providing uh, citizens with access to the courts. Even during this pandemic, we have uh, had to be very creative in how we do that and um, 
I like to think that we've we've been mostly successful in that. Uh, but currently, uh, we are open and our in-person access is limited to, of course, employees and uh, attorneys, uh, litigants, people who actually have court business that day, uh, witnesses, victims, um, and of course, emergency matters. If anyone has an emergency matter, um, they are granted in-person access. Um, but other than that, it is, uh, there's not a whole lot of just public milling about in the courthouse for obvious reasons. And um, so on a case, on, on, as far as the cases go, uh, each judge uh, takes a really close look at their cases and is going through those cases, trying to determine what cases need to appear in person or should appear in person versus perhaps there's some cases that are um, uh, able to be done through virtual means. And um, that's been a new thing for the most part over the last year. And um, I've been a, a proponent of that option. And I like to think that uh, we've had good results with it. It's it's important in my view to keep these cases moving and to provide persons with access to the courts and that can be done through uh, virtual hearings. And so I've, I've really uh, been pushing virtual hearings and have had good results with them. And we get the cases moving, um, especially on the civil arena. Um, I've, uh, had really good feedback and experience uh, handling a lot of the civil motions and uh, oral arguments um, through virtual means. Uh, I think the attorneys appreciate it and they uh, are, are able to effectively advocate for uh, their clients in their cases. And it gives me an opportunity to to carefully read the, the motions and, and hear the oral argument and then, then um, enter, enter an order with, with findings and we make a record of these proceedings. And so uh, I think it's worked well um, it, on that. There's certain things that just have to be done in person and we continue to do that. But the, the virtual platforms have been a, a really good thing in my view. What do you think has been uh, the most challenging aspect of the pandemic? Again, how much time do we have? Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, that is such a good question and it's just so encompassing. Um, it's just been a whirlwind since what, mid-March until now. Uh, none of us have ever been through anything like this. The legal profession has certainly never been through anything like this. We've all had to adjust. We've had to rethink the way that we do things. Uh, it hasn't been easy and it, it hasn't been ideal. Um, so in, on a, in a good sense though, uh, we're starting to see some light at the end of the tunnel, I think. Uh, vaccine is rolling out. Courthouses are slowly starting to to open more. Uh, and as you stated, the Oklahoma Supreme Court has left it up to the judicial leadership of each county to come up with the specifics as to how to implement um, this access to the courts. And so each county is uh, doing what uh, they feel best meets their needs. And um, 
so, but all of it has been a challenge. I mean, I didn't even know what Zoom was before March of <laughs> 2020, uh, or blue jeans, or all of this video conferencing. I know there was a local rule on it, Rule 34, but I, I sure didn't have to um, uh, spend much time on it. And so the challenges have been all of it. Uh, I've yet to have a perfect virtual hearing. Um, there's glitches, there are uh, inherent delays, but I've gotten through 100% of the hearings. And, and when I think about it, I've yet to have a perfect in-person hearing. It, it just doesn't happen. Sure. Uh, there, there are delays and there things come up and um, there's mistakes, there's embarrassments, um, and you just, you work through them. Um, none of this is, is necessarily comfortable for all of us, but I think that it's important for us to try these things. Uh, we need to learn quickly and we need to be flexible. Again, we've never been through anything like this. Um, so, yeah, it, it's been a challenge dealing with the um, risk of, of, of this disease of COVID. And um, there's rarely a case that comes before me uh, right now where at some point in either the hearing or the conference, the topic of COVID doesn't come up it, where it hasn't touched this case in some manner. And so we have to deal with that and, and all the what ifs and the, the exposure and the risk of exposure, it's crept its way into scheduling matters in um, uh, trying to convene people and in what way we're gonna convene them and bringing witnesses. Uh, how we're going to do that, um, trying to get exhibits, uh, how that's going to be done, uh, making records. I mean, it's challenging on all of these fronts, um, but we're, we're getting through it. We're being creative, and, and um, I think that that's, uh, that's what's important. Do you think you'll continue using virtual hearings after we're sort of in the clear? I don't know how long that'll be, but um, you mentioned we do have a, a district court rule on it. Without question, I'm going to, and it just makes sense mm -hmm. it, on whether or not there's a, a public health crisis. It just makes sense um, to do some of these matters by video conferencing. And I think most attorneys would agree with that. Um, uh, like I mentioned with the, with the civil cases specifically, um, it, it makes no sense really to have attorneys travel from all these different cities on a motion for summary judgment to appear for a 10 minute oral argument in front of me uh, when we can set up a a, a blue jeans or a Microsoft Teams virtual hearing. We can make a record of that. The attorneys can make their presentations. I can read the briefs and and uh, render a ruling, file it here at the courthouse, and um, distribute it to the attorneys. Um, so yes, I'm without question. I'm going to continue to to utilize it in appropriate cases. It, it's helpful with criminal cases too for some of the more routine matters when we're having to um, 
uh, see inmates, whether those inmates are in DOC or in the county jail, uh, we now have the ability to, to connect with those inmates uh, via video conferencing and conduct a meaningful hearing um, without the need to transport everyone to the courthouse and risk exposure. Um, uh, so yeah, video conferencing makes sense uh, going forward and I fully intend on using it. That's great. I think that's, uh, even though these were, we had to learn on the fly and, and some of these growing experiences have not been painless, I think it's forced um, you know, forced attorneys and the legal profession and courts in general to take a look at the technology that's available that can, um, you know, make things more efficient, not just for the court system, but for our clients. You know, when you're talking about driving from El Reno to Norman for a hearing, you know, somebody's gotten, somebody's paying for that, you know, and it's the client. And so cutting down you know, virtual hearings cuts down on some of the costs to the client um, in that regard. So it, it can help make things more efficient um, on their end as well. So um, if you will just um, give us maybe a couple of practice pointers for the attorneys that are listening, generally for Cleveland County and more specifically um, attorneys that are practicing um, in front of you. Sure. So, you know, I don't have anything real profound to say on this regard. <laughs> Most of what uh, is important to me, I think, is is important to um, all judges, and, it, and it's pretty commonsensical, but it bears repeating, though, because it's um, we see it in the courtroom. So, number one, show up on time. Uh, show up on time. Time is so precious, especially now that we're going through this big backlog of cases, um, especially if an attorney is going to take cases and handle cases in counties uh, where they where their office may not be, they're doing a lot of traveling, boy, it is important to be on time. Um, and that is something that that I um, take a particular note of because you may only have a 15 minute window to get in to present your case. And if you're running 10 minutes late, then, okay, you, you've got five minutes now. So show up on time. Uh, better than that, show up early. <laughs> and, uh, I might even give you a little more time if you show up early. So, because uh, I appreciate that. And I want to work with attorneys. Um, and also just, of course, we're all professionals. We're all officers of the court. And yet um, I see um, too often um, unnecessary adversarialness uh, amongst uh, the bar in the courtroom specifically. And it's just unnecessary. Um, and I get it. There's a time to advocate and zealously advocate that. I, I appreciate that very much. But um, there's a time for it and then uh, there's a time not for it. So it gets to professionalism and just being kind to one another. Uh, you can zealously advocate for your clients and be kind um, to the opposing side in doing so. Um, and, and to piggyback off of that, I, I think that attorneys really need to spend time with their clients uh, in advance of showing up in court 
and giving them expectations of what court is and what it's not, what, what we're here to do and how you are to conduct yourself in court, how you are to uh, behave and give them a roadmap of just what is at issue on that given day. Uh, I see people who show up in court and, and I get the sense that there's a disconnect sometimes from the client and the attorney. Uh, the, the attorney knows why they're there, but the client may not necessarily understand what the nature of the hearing is today. And I, I get the sense that sometimes they want to be heard on uh, two or three things that aren't uh, at issue for that day. And I think there's a disconnect from time to time with uh, attorneys and their clients uh, in, in what they're doing in court. Okay, so Judge Tepper, our podcast is called Oklahoma Appeals, so we do feel some obligation to ask something about appeals. Uh, so do, in your experience at the trial court, um, could you uh, share anything that you've seen done well with regard to making and preserving a record for an appeal and, and maybe an example of something you've seen that uh, was, was not helpful and, and caused uh, cause there to be a problem with the record or missing things in the record. Yeah, sure. So again, I don't think I'm saying anything too profound here, but uh, as far as maybe some practical uh, tips on, on errors that I've seen uh, and continue to see in the trial court, number one is always make a good record. Um, don't assume that everything is on the record because it's not. Um, and unless you request it to be on the record, I've got a great court reporter, but I don't bring her out to every type of hearing that, that I hear. Um, if any, there are certain things that I absolutely bring her out on, but uh, if a party doesn't ask for it and I'm not, it's not something that I pre-planned on having a record on, uh, we may get into a hearing and all of a sudden, 15 minutes into it, one of the attorneys will ask uh, where the court reporter is. And my response will be, well, she's in my office. You haven't asked for a record on this. And there we are 15 minutes into, into a hearing. So uh, don't ever assume that uh, just because you're showing up in court, there's going to be a record uh, provided to you. Um, We'll, we'll make a record, but, um, and I think that court proceedings, they should be done with, with the deliberate purpose uh, of establishing a good record for appeal purposes. Um, I don't know that all attorneys, when they're in the trial court, are looking ahead, so to speak, towards a potential appeal. I think they focus on what's in front of them right then and there and trying to get a good outcome, but uh, they're not always going to get a good outcome. And so they need to be um, thinking about that and how they can uh, protect that, that record uh, in the event there is an appeal. Uh, so request a record, uh, protect the record, make timely objections. Uh, those timely objections, they matter on appeal. Uh, admit exhibits. Uh, don't assume that just because you've provided the court with a big binder uh, full of proposed exhibits and they're all marked, uh, don't assume that those are automatically admitted. 
because they're not. Um, I appreciate having those, but there's still an obligation of the attorneys to get those uh, exhibits admitted into evidence. And um, absolutely provide the court with, with copies of the proposed exhibits, but make sure the court reporter has those original exhibits admitted into evidence. Uh, talk to the court reporters, get to know these court reporters. They're the custodians of the, of the record and these exhibits. And so you really need to work with these court reporters and different court reporters may do things a little bit different as, as far as um, admitting those exhibits. The, the courts will get them admitted. We all understand that process, but as far as handling and processing them, you really need to work with those court reporters because once they're admitted, um, the, there's a lot of deference that I think uh, judges give to their court reporters as to how those uh, uh, will be kept and um, uh, because they're the custodians of them. So getting to know those court reporters, knowing their preferences and communicating with them uh, is very important. That's all very helpful. And, and you've been very generous with your time, Judge Tupper, and you've been a fantastic guest. So we appreciate you very much spending some time with us and, and providing uh, so much good information for our listeners. Yeah, well, this is great. Thank you very much for having me. This is uh, this is a real uh, pleasure uh, when uh, I've learned about this podcast. This is a great podcast and I've, uh, I've got it downloaded and, and I'm an avid listener now. So uh -oh. <laughs> yeah, Oh man. <laughs> like you said, I don't have a, I don't have a, a clerk to help me with all these appellate decisions coming down. I, I read the journals, uh, but this will be a nice new way for me to receive information on new appellate decisions. So this is great. Hi everyone. This is Gabe again to find show notes, contact the host, and more, go to oklahomaappeals.com. Also, if you're interested in the things we cover on this show, then you should follow us on Twitter, at Oklahoma Appeals, where we post court news and other items of interest for Oklahoma lawyers. Okay, Jana and I will be back with a new episode every other Wednesday. So until next time, bye-bye.